0: what's up yo thanks for tuning in asian bitches down under the podcast all about sharing information and perspectives from the asian diaspora point of view in society and culture we encourage you to subscribe to our show by apple google or spotify or any podcast platform of your choice and we welcome our listeners to support our show by sending us comments give us review and share our podcast with your fellow podcast lovers make sure you check out the episode show notes for any collaborations we are working with to promote. Thanks again, and we hope you enjoy today's show. Hey all this is Jessie. And
1: this is Helen. And you're listening to Asian Bitches Down Under, where I don't know why, but I'm always landing on... A- the weather. I'm not going to talk about the weather right now. Um, I am going to talk about um, three things that I did this week. Four. Five. Amazing. I did a couple of things. So um, (laughs) the Sydney International Women's Jazz Festival was on and i am oh i didn't even know that's a thing yeah it's great and you know i love jazz i love women and so yeah. like it's like the combination of two of the best things in life mm-hmm. and honestly they're amazing i my partner and i have seen a couple of gigs so far at foundry 616 which is in ultimo it's like known as a jazz club gig the only mm-hmm. yeah, the only place we've been to is like 505 which i believe is no longer a a scene. I think it closed down during the pandemic sadly. Okay. And then um Lazy Bones which like we literally live like 5 seconds away from. Like I'm not joking. Which so it's great. Okay. Um but uh, this this week we went to a couple of jazz um gigs. Uh, last night was Mingus Among Us which they, you know, did a bunch of like a set from Mingus uh, Charles Mingus's books which was great. Um, the other day, we heard from um, a band, a female band called Pharos, a ten a ten mm-hmm. piece female band playing the composition of Sophie Ming, who's like this incredible up and coming composer. So I just like the combination of like jazz and like women pushing the boundaries of what jazz could mean. You know, I feel like yeah. in Australia, jazz is such a sort of forgotten scene because you know compared to a, the United States, it's really it's almost like the same in where, in the way that a lot of classical musicians who start off in Australia eventually have to move to Europe. overseas. Yeah, or overseas, yeah, yeah, because it's just like really... There's nothing here. uh, Yeah, I'm not bagging out Australia intentionally. It really is just a fact that if you want to study with the best, Mm. nobody is in Australia, unfortunately. The best of the best. Like, there are incredible musicians, I don't doubt that, in Australia. But um, if you want to grow and expand yourself, you really need to leave Australia, unfortunately. But in saying that, there are a lot of phenomenal jazz musicians uh, you know, currently still performing here in Sydney. We're very lucky. So mm-hmm. we we did that. I wrote a couple of pieces for Limelight. I feel like I might have overdone it with the adjectives. Um, but I think because I've never written about jazz, <laughs> I kind of freaked out.
0: I've also started reading two books, um, Ed Ayers, um, who... Oh, hey, before you move on to that, I want to ask you the question. How many Asians were there oh, in the oh, audience? Say, and yeah. were there Asian performers? Okay,
1: um, no Asian performers. Um, uh, yeah, um, uh-huh. jazz is very, in Australia, is a very, very, very white space. So, it's yeah, mostly right. dominated by men and the women uh-huh. who do penetrate the jazz space are all, like, almost exclusively white. Uh-huh. Um, in the audience, at least I could speak for last night and Sunday night's performance, both at the Foundry 616, I noticed that um, I'd say about 85% were white Mm-hmm. And then the remainder, 15%, was Asian. And then, like, no oh, no black okay. people. I no. saw, oh. yeah, I saw, like, about five That's or unusual. six um, Asian people, including myself. Uh-huh. Everyone else was white. Um, no black people. And like I just I remember just sitting next to my partner and thinking like if this was in New Orleans everyone would be black and we'll be black. Yeah, yeah and all yeah, the performers yeah, would it's be black, black music yeah, yeah 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 that so that was interesting um I think I think the spread of demographics is also interesting Helen like I, I looked at last night um and it's true like uh, people say that in jazz gigs most of the people are like old old white men who go to like jazz mm-hmm. gigs but it's I either see really old people or like really mm-hmm. young people like you know twenty year olds. Oh, and no. then I was thinking, oh, where are the like 35, 45 In between. Yeah, and then I was like, yeah. uh, they're they're mostly at, they're probably at home looking after young children, because the well, thing that's is one pro- possibility. Yeah, because the thing yeah, is with is... jazz, um, the gigs go on for really late in the night. That's like, right. Yeah. Like, this yeah. is me. Like really late for me is like eleven o'clock. That's really late mm-hmm. for me. Like I like yeah, to go to bed. That's de- definitely late for yeah, me. Yeah, I like to go to bed at like nine thirty. Honestly, mm-hmm. so like, and then the gigs have been starting at roughly te- uh, eight thirty, and then the sets mm-hmm. go on for about two two and a half hours. So, yeah, yeah, it's really late. But I mean, jazz is something that just honestly makes my life just. I don't even know how to explain the, my absolute sort of loyalty to jazz. I just I feel something mm-hmm. for it that I don't feel for anything else in the world. Um, so I'm very honoured to go and Write about it, and I guess relatedly, I'm reading a book about music by Ed Ayres, who's the um, yes. ABC Classic FM. I don't know if he still does that presenter. presenter, yeah.
0: I think he is still doing the weekend or the Saturday right. morning one, yeah, yeah, yeah. So he wrote, he used to be the one that I really love before that he transitioned to Ed, he was Emma, and yeah. I used to listen to their program every morning. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, it's amazing, because, amazing voice. because his
1: voice is so great. Yeah, I and know. also, Helen, yeah, 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 you yeah. read one of
0: um, his books about cycling. Uh, danger music. Cycling in oh, no, 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 Afghanistan no, no. or something? Oh, when they were teaching in Afghanistan. Yeah, danger music. Yeah. yeah.
1: yeah. So um, this one is his latest book, Whole Notes, Life mm-hmm. Lessons Through Music. And I have to say, it's making me want to pick up my violin again, oh. which is amazing because you know how much mm. I like, am traumatized He's by the dislike. violin and hate yeah. it like, just because it brings up so many awful memories for me. Very sad. It shouldn't be like that. His book is so tender and it kind of makes me, Mm. ground me, reminds me of why music is all about beauty and the pursuit of beauty and Mm -hmm. self-knowledge and patience, you know? It's really, really beautiful. I can't wait to give it to you. So that's one of my SMH review books, which is so great. I love when I get a really nice book to review <laughs> yeah it doesn't happen all the time <laughs> and the other book I um I'm reading is Huma Ab- Abdeen's Both Slash Other and if you don't know Huma Abdeen is like making the rounds in the media at the moment she is most famously unfortunately famously known as the ex-wife um, of Anthony Weiner who is like this outrageously gross of a New York? I think he was a New York sort of running for mayor in New York in the early 2000s or 2010, roughly around, I think. And I, a few years ago uh, at the Sydney Film Festival in 2016, I went to see one of the documentaries called Wiener, which was about him and his race and well, okay. his kind of like his uh-huh. massive controversy. He used to, he, he and I believe he still does sexting. Like he would send, it came out that oh. he sent uh-huh. pictures of his boner to like, Prostitutes or young women and stuff. Mm-hmm. So anyway, Huma is the was the wife, and um, I remember seeing the documentary and thinking like, wow, this woman is putting up with a lot for, like, mm-hmm. his, like... Behaviour. For his... I, I I really hate using the word pathetic. I was about to say pathetic husband. But he's just, like, <laughs> basically... He abused a lot of her trust. And, you know, he just sounded like the worst human being ever. But, like, the the documentary Wiener, I honestly recommend to anyone. It's so fucking well done because mm-hmm. it sort of has the very comic energy to it in the way that um, very early Michael Moore documentaries had. And it kind oh, of yeah. really captures... Uh-huh the ridiculousness of white male power and the the sort of like it also captures the behind the scenes of what it means to run a campaign in New York and it was really kind of really clarified a lot of things I had in my head back then about wanting to become a politician because I think in 2016 I was studying law and Mm -hmm. thinking about pursuing a, a career in like Politics in politics, yeah. Um, but I mean, Australia and New Z- the states are obviously very different. But you know, there were things mm-hmm. I could tie in together. And her book. Oh, her book. <laughs> Coming back to her other, book. Yeah, both slash other. I've only just started, but um, I it's twenty one hours. Like I'm listening oh, to. Oh wow! An oh, you're listening it's to an audio
0: book. Yeah.
1: Yeah, so it's not. very long. I don't know how long it'll take me to finish it, but um, if I do an hour a day, I guess I could finish it when, within twenty one days. A of weeks. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. But I'm very excited to mm-hmm. read that because I like to know the backstory of she was. Um, be... What
0: makes her? Well, I forgot this person to mention to the listeners from... yeah.
1: that she was the advisor and assistant to Hillary Clinton while she was running for her campaign. Oh, and that's kind of why. So she's
0: into politics.
1: As yeah, well, yeah, so. totally. Yeah. Okay, and obviously I'm gonna talk a little bit about um, the latest Bond, which we went to. See, it. Dendi Newtown this week, pa- full packed cinema. It was great. Um, I had a chocolate cookies and cream ice, um, choc top, top, yeah, which mm-hmm. is like the best. And I went to see it with my favorite person in the world after my partner, um, Billy. Shout out to Billy, who's like, like I'm fucking obsessed with.
0: <laughs> and that you should you should worship him. Yeah, <laughs> no, I know. I want like
1: a a podcast just like all about Billy. <laughs> He's a fucking genius. Um, yeah, but before we talk about that, Helen, let's catch up on what you saw this week, the movie that really um, you were looking forward to, right? And tell us why you were looking forward to it.
0: I don't know if I was looking forward to it, but definitely for two members of my family, they were looking forward to it. Well, you My were daughter lo- and my husband yeah, well, you were, looking were looking forward, forward to, it to watch this one. Because it's directed by Chloe Zhao. Oh, right? not really. I don't think it was because it was... G- uh, directed by Chloe Zhao, that I was looking forward to. Oh, okay. I was just uh, expecting something that's different to the usual Marvel movies that we've seen in the past years. So the movie is called The Internal. I think we saw. I think I saw the trailer a couple of months ago.
1: Okay.
0: There wasn't any hype about the movie. Yeah. At all yeah. because yeah. it was pretty much dominated by Shang Chi. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Uh,
0: the Marvel franchise. Yeah. And. So I wasn't, I didn't have much expectations right. before I went in to see it. Right. Uh, the only thing that I was concerned was the length of the time of the movie was over two and a half hours. Yeah. I was thinking, fucking hell, well, it I don't want to is. sit in there. <laughs> I don't want to sit in the cinema for so long. Yeah. Uh, eventually that my husband got the ticket and my conclusion for the movie is that it's about six out of ten for me. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's basically it's a sci-fi fantasy genre. Marvel movie, of course, and the characters are very much based on the cultural mythological characters. Mm-hmm. There is a great cast of diversities without giving the spoilers. Gemma Chan is the lead, mm-hmm. but it really reflects on the reality of the female leadership. Mm-hmm. She eventually taken as a position of the leadership in that group, the internals, mm-hmm. and but there's of course, there's a disruption of romance that actually influences her decision-making. And there's some aspects I really don't like about how they portray uh, the characters, specifically Angelina Jolene's character. Yeah. She's a side character, okay? yeah. She's a, which is very unusual. You think about it, Angelina Jolene, every move that she makes, she'll be the, the, the central The lead, character. yeah. But yeah, so she's a side character. Um, I don't like how they, the script, have created the character. Essentially, her character is uh, like a warrior prince, uh, well, not the princess, but the goddess of a warrior. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. And throughout the movie, there is like a glitch happening in her head. Uh-huh. Uh, and then makes her start, made her start attacking her own um, friends. Uh-huh. And you can really tell that if, someone who doesn't know much about mental health, Mm. they will create something like that. Essentially, she is traumatized from her... She has traumas from her past experience. Mm. And they created in the scenarios of how she triggered that trauma is that by her response is that she start attacking other people. Okay, that's fucked up. Like attacking her friend. Yeah. So it's very detrimental. It's like a stigma towards people with mental health. Yeah, that's fucked up. Like, yeah. they think that the tra- the response to the trauma is is yeah, Which is not true. Yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah.
1: It, it really is fucked up because most of the people who do... I, I don't know. I just feel like that is not... It's not a good depiction of, obviously, uh, not... No, um, yeah, definitely not. Um, realistic depiction of what actually happens to people who suffer from mental illness. And you're mm-hmm. right, it's, like, totally demonising to yeah, a very fucked-up yeah. degree. And I have to say, I will relate you, I will relate that point in my assessment of the latest Bond, No Time to Die, but mm-hmm. af- after you finish this summary of your movie. So.
0: Oh, no, that's that's about it for oh, okay. me. okay. I think... Um, I don't want to give up, you know, any spoilers. If anyone wants to go and see it, it's fine. Um, Yeah, cl- close out director, support Asian yeah. directors if you want. Yeah, so, yeah.
1: Yeah, I guess, like, Marvel just brought her, brought her on maybe in the last, I don't know, last 12 months to, like, to bring on the power that she gleaned from winning an Oscar, you know, from her Nomadland. Mm-hmm. But it doesn't mean that it's anything yeah. like Nomadland, you know? No, I yeah. just don't
0: think that she's fits into this kind of genre. Yeah, she must have and the overall movie yeah. it's very it's a bit of I'll say it's a bit messy. Right. Yeah. Like it, it the timeline jumps from here to there yeah. and goes back and forth. There's, oh my god. It's a bit that messy. Awful. Yeah. If you wanna watch her for the action for the purpose of action that's fine but I, I do feel like it's a little bit messy
1: yeah well um kind of tying into your point about how ridiculous it is where stories in big food movies hollywood movies like this where the villain is always given this backstory of past trauma i have to relate mm. that to no time to die which is the bonds mm-hmm. daniel craig's fifth and last movie and in that um rumi malik plays the villain and mm. and same thing, like and same thing with Christopher Waltz's character. It's like they had some sort of past trauma, and their way of dealing with it is to like try and take over the world and murder as many people as possible. Mm. And I remember turning to my partner afterwards and saying, because like my partner and yeah. I had spent the last month or so watching every Bond from Piers Brosnan up until the <laughs> yeah. latest Daniel Craig, uh-huh. in order to you know give ourselves a sense of timeline and also to an- in anticipation mm-hmm. of the last Bond, which we saw this week. I realized that. um a lot of what happens is like the same narrative trope of the villain is that, oh, they had their their family murdered when they were, like, young and what their way of dealing with it is to try and take over the world. It's like one shift. It's just like the shift from personal tragedy to absolute world domination and human genocide. is like the leap is just extraordinary. It's like it doesn't make Mm – it really logically doesn't make sense. And I said to my partner afterwards, if it was true that – All the people who had ever been traumatized as children became villains, like the way that they do in Bond. Then the world would have damaged. Like the world would have killed itself ages ago. Ages ago. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, No Time to Die was okay. It was too long. It was like two and a two hours and forty (laughs) six minutes. Way too long. Oh my god. Why is why are movies so long nowadays? It was so. Oh, it was really too long. Um, I I have nothing much to say about it other than I think Rumi Malik is a great actor and like. Mm-hmm, yeah. He, I believe he's a great actor. Yeah, he, he's very undermined by Hollywood. Under, undervalued. Yeah. Undervalued. Yeah. yeah he yeah. um I, he, perhaps his um role as Freddie Mercury in Bohemian Rhapsody was actually like his peak. I don't know. Maybe yeah. It typecast him too early. <laughs> mm, I think he's great and yeah. he should do much more. Oh, the only thing that bothered me during um. My screening of No Time to Die was in a very poignant scene with uh, Madeline Swan, who is played by Lea Seydoux, who's like honestly the hottest woman in the world. She <laughs> returns as Bond's lover. There's this really tender scene throughout the, in the movie which lasted for about 20 seconds and next next to me there was this white woman who was unwrapping her chalk top really fucking loudly she was so fucking loud and she just was so unaware so unaware Uh that she was Uh being so loud and like honestly the whole cinema was quiet because it's like this very tender scene between bond and madeline and like she was like (laughs) i was like I was like, girl, what the fuck are you doing? Like, it's just that obliviousness was like, kind of bothered me that she was so, like, uh-huh. unaware of what she was doing. <laughs> she was just desperate to get to yeah, the just, top just Yeah, top. exactly. <laughs> oh, my God. Um, but, uh, yeah, anyway, I've got one more thing to mention before we launch into yeah. today's topic. Mm-hmm. But, um, Tommy, yeah. you went to the finalists of the Concerto Competition this
0: yeah, past week. tell I, me about it it was it was on last Sunday uh, I was invited to attend a consumer competition because my friend's kid was one of the finalists mm-hmm. and from my observation was that all six finalists were all East Asian girls except for my friend's daughter she's half she's half Asian mm-hmm. yeah and I noticed that all the mothers were the ones who were bearing the responsibility of how to prepare their yeah, kids yeah onto the stage where are the fathers yeah Yeah, I don't see and even even with the audience I I don't see a lot of fathers were there I don't know if they think that it is you know maybe they spend their Sunday afternoon in the golf course somewhere else that (laughs) they consider is much better fuckers Um, but it was interesting that Seen that all the finalists were all Asians and East Asians in particular, mm. and I, I just don't understand why. Well, I kind of understand, like, I know that a lot of Asian parents push their kids into this kind of path, you know, music, talent, and also academic levels. But I don't see any white people at all. I mean, I, there, there were white people in the audience, mm. but what made me a little bit I don't even know how to describe this feeling. The adjudicators were all white.
2: And you've seen all the
0: finalists were all Asian. It it, it seems like you're having. Like, there's no adjudicators that. Or even the presenters. Who are people of colour? The awards. Yeah, who are people of colour.
1: That's pretty fucked up. They should they should yeah. know to be a little more diverse. But I guess it is, like, the Central Coast, so...
0: Oh, no, it's not in the Central Coast. It's northern be- It's the North Sydney area. Well, Northern Beaches, come on. They're all white. Northern anyway. Beaches, yeah, they're all very white. But we're talking about areas from, you know, Homesby all the way down to North Sydney. So there's uh, Chatswood yeah. and, you know, yeah. Pennyhues, you have kids. Well... The, all the kids are from private school again. Yeah, yeah, okay. Yeah. Yeah. And I like that you point that out. You don't have any other. You don't have a finalist that I don't remember seeing. A the finalist that is from a public school. Mm, yeah. So that says from a lot. Private school. <laughs> yeah. From private school, but I just feel a little bit strange seeing all the presenters of the war and the adjudicators were white people. Yeah. It's, and it's like white people are still to, being the adjudicators of what is good yeah to judge you know they were there to judge and yeah. they have the power to determine who yeah, is the winner. Exactly. yeah
1: exactly who who is the yeah and it's like white people are still the arbiters of like they're still the gatekeepers of what qualifies as good classical music and what's not good classical music They mm-hmm. they're still the ones yeah. determining if you get to like join our club of whiteness kind of thing yeah i think if yeah. i was there i would have been so deeply uncomfortable
0: seeing that that's what I recognise. I don't know if any other audience or, you know, other parents realised that, but I just didn't feel... I don't want to say that I was uncomfortable, but I just, just say it. thought that it was just... I would have been uncomfortable. Funny. Uh Speaking of
1: whiteness, I'm going Mm. to mention an article, a report that I wrote on this week about um, the Women for Media report. Um, So every two years, I believe, the Women for Media series, basically it's a study done of um, within one month. Okay. So in the month of May this year, a group, a bunch of people collected the gender of articles that were written uh, on the front page of major newspapers. And also they, they kind of conducted a survey to see how many people, like what gender were the people who were quoted from the articles, Mm -hmm. you know? Yeah. And uh, I mean, it's quite startling. They found out that like women still were being quoted much less than men and that um, Mm. men tended to write on sports and politics, whereas women tended to write on the issues of health and entertainment. And Mm -hmm. I guess um, if you want to have a look at the report, there are more like like, more specific figures that, uh, you know, you can glean from it but what i want to mention now with helen on this podcast is just the which i didn't which i didn't mention in my article was just um how overwhelmingly um white female all the editors were so um Mm -hmm. in the uh, report which was 100 pages long there was about roughly 30 pages of um, interviews like in-depth interviews with the editorial directors of The Age, Nine Digital, The Australian Financial Review, The Australian, Daily Mail Australia, News.com.au, Guardian Australia, and SMH. So just the major, no, the major Australian Australian
0: news pump. media. Yeah, the major news media. Yeah, exactly.
1: And um, out of the one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, out of the ten editors that they reviewed, all of them were white women and can I just say they all looked very like the same like I was like I was scrolling through them and I was like oh my god these Mm. white women look exactly the same there was just two guys one Asian the uh, head of network at news gathering so he wasn't even um, the the editor of news ABC News, he was just the head of network, but he was interviewed, um, mm-hmm. Cav- Gavin Fang, and then the mm-hmm. only other guy was um, Anthony De La Sia, who is the editor-in-chief of West Australian Newspaper. And all of the other women like um, Gay Alcorn, who's the editor of The Age, White Woman, Kerry L. Stubb, editorial director of Nine Digital, White Woman, Joanne Grey, Claire Harvey, mm-hmm. Felicity Hetherington, Lisa M- Muxworth, Leon Lee Taylor, uh, the editor of Guardian Australia, and Lisa Davis, SMH editor. I was just like, no wonder we have things like the white women's syndrome, missing women's syndrome, which we talked about a few weeks ago. Because, mm-hmm. like, we do we have, we don't have because we women have, of
0: colour yeah, on board to write about articles such yeah, different. that matter to
1: anyone outside of whiteness, exactly. Like, yeah. it's just like, of course yeah. we have a tendency for the media to only write about white people issue because we have white women at the top of these media corporations, you know? Mm-hmm. mm-hmm oh god kill yeah. me just kill me honestly it's just like where the we, fuck we, is the australia. diversity <laughs>
0: honestly i think australia needs to do more studies and researches into diversities like really look into the issues why i guess it's on the rise saying you know medias are picking up issues about indigenous community and also immigrants but there's just not enough mm. yeah there's just not enough and also i'm gonna say that a lot of media outlets uh, very commercialized mainstream ones. let say Channel Ten, Channel Seven, Channel Nine are the ones that I definitely don't watch. Yeah, they tend to do a lot of stereotyping into yeah, exactly. people of color. Yeah, exactly. Um, I'm specifically talking about. There's recently a new reality show. I haven't started watching it, but our sister forwarded asked an article about. What is it? A show called Parental Guidance. Oh, okay. Where they follow a couple of families and judge. I'm going to put an air quote on it. Like Uh kind of like judging their parental style. That's
1: fucked up, man. That's so fucked up. And
0: there's a Taiwanese family that I've... I don't know this family, but I know it through from a couple of my friends. You know, like mutual friends. Apparently they've been labeled as tiger parents. Mm and they force their kid not force a kid they encourage a kid i was i was was afraid i'll frame it as they encourage the kids to go out and do busking performance which i did myself before but in the eyes of a lot of white people that is considered to be tiger parent
2: right
0: yeah so they really reinforce that kind of stereotypical ideas about asian parents yeah i mean i don't know if that's you know, yeah, the right thing to do it's No, it's really not. fucked
1: up. Um, yeah. I mean ev- everything about network television and commercial television in both Australia and America I mean America's better just because they have more black people in positions of power but in Australia it's just like racist it's so racist it's mm-hmm. like um, border what was that show called border control or something border force oh, yeah. control yeah border control yeah like yeah. that's super racist because they always pick on the ethnic people uh, yeah that's right yeah ugh god kill me but uh let's take a break and we'll be right back mm-hmm. and talk about aging uh, especially when it comes to the perception of aging what we our thoughts on aging um mm-hmm. especially as as our asian women asian
0: yeah we'll be right back we're back And I want to start with our, uh, this week's topic on aging from an article that I read recently is by Jessica Valenti about getting old. So she's recently celebrated her, I guess was 43rd birthday. I'm going to quote here from her article. Can I just say that's not even old. Yeah.
1: (laughs) But women, but women, you know, like over 35, you're like, Oh, you're ancient. (laughs)
0: Okay, go on, sorry. Okay, so what she said was that after decades of letting other people's opinions shape and control my life, it's quite a feeling and one that's completely unexpected. Like most Americans, women especially, I was taught to fear aging, told that getting old means that I will be less attractive, socially irrelevant and hopelessly uncool. Mm. What a fucking scam. Yeah, And a smart one at that because when women buy into the idea that getting older is awful we spend all of our time and money and energy trying to soften the blow we get painful surgeries or spend too much money on skincare. we cover our grey hair every 4 weeks and try to dress in the sweet spot of fashionable enough not to be a hag but age appropriate enough not to seem as desperate the irony is that all of this work to look and feel younger actually staves off the best thing about ageing not giving a fuck (laughs) But I imagine that's the point. Our culture depends on women caring deeply what other people think about them. It's foundational to American patriarchy and consumerism. The worse we feel, the more we buy, the less we like ourselves. The more we depend on others' opinions. And the longer women hold on to those insecurities, the, uh, the better it is for the sexist status quo. Um, my thought about what she said is that not just the American patriarchy Mm. and the consumerism. It's very universal patriarchy and consumerism. And it's definitely hit harder. For women. I shouldn't compare here. Yeah. Yeah, For women, of course. Yeah. But I shouldn't compare here. I was going to say for Asian women. Right. Because the consumerism on beauty standard in Asia is just phenomenal. Yeah, it is. Yeah. To the point that Yeah. Only when you're older, uh, not only when you're older, but just for me, the past 10 years and also that I'm starting to reflect how fucked up it is. Yeah. yeah. What do you mean? Why, why has it
1: only been the past 10 years that you've noticed this?
0: Well, I think first of all is that because by having a daughter, mm. I, I don't think motherhood should change any of this, of your perceptions, but I think... Having a daughter really opened my eyes, seeing more uh, how patriarchal and capitalist and consumerism is very damaging to our, our well-being as a woman, as a female. Mm-hmm. And I want to start by talking about the natural biological emphasis on females' usefulness. Yeah, the main issues that a lot of people focus on women's. Usefulness is down to fertility yeah. and reproduction. Yeah. you know all the energy to have a kid. You know? yeah. but now as we remove all those necessities of reproduction in our lives, you know more people are choosing not to have kids. Mm. Does the society still see a higher value on woman's fertility and usefulness? Mm. So that's one thing, and also I think there's a lot of misconceptions about like so-called the uh, woman's biological clock, like woman can still have kids when they're in the early forties, but didn't know that, I think yeah. a lot of, a lot of social perceptions push women to have kids in their so-called prime, yeah. like prime age, like yeah. twenty to thirty, like, and or to get married, because still a lot of Asian cultures they tie marriage and have kids as in one entity. People don't want to have kids without the marriage, mm.
1: so mm.
0: I think that's pretty fucked up as well. Yeah. But So the social emphasis on females' usefulness down to the rigid standard of beauty. I think there's also the... Infantilizing? Infantilizing, yeah. Infantilizing female for the sake of power domination by the patriarchy. Yeah. Essentially the men. Like I really... Like used to be... I used to like or enjoy the feeling when people ask him to see my ID when I'm going to buy alcohol. Most people like that. I hate... But I hate it now. Yeah, I find I it very insulting. I am not longer impressed by people who think that I look young. I'm like, fuck you. Yeah, you
1: know? I think they see it, <laughs> but, it, but the, I think not to be on their side, but they mm. probably most likely just think that it will come to you as a compliment because they think yeah, you're they're complimenting
0: but you. Sounds, uh, yeah, I don't know. I don't feel like that anymore. Yeah, 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 and that's that's a good thing that you don't. So the capitalism and consumerism. Really controls the standard of beauty. You know the aesthetics to fit into the society. What is meant to be beautiful? Like there's not enough emphasis on the beauty of being a being old. Yeah. And also, I want to point out that you don't see a lot of romance. There's not enough romance or sex oh, of right. old people. Yeah. Yeah. Totally. Yeah. It's always been considered that sex is something that is enjoyed by young people. Yeah. But people, it's not. It's nothing. It's got nothing to do with age. Yeah, like people can enjoy sex well into their seventies and eighties. Yeah,
1: I can't wait to be yeah. like, if I, if I, grow old healthily, <laughs> I can't wait to like kind of be like, oh my god, the whole world was a joke. Like everything that I believed when I was a kid was just like so mm. ridiculous. Because like we literally have an, like you say an obsession with youthfulness. Mm-hmm. honestly and yeah. it never goes away like um I, I when i when i'm hearing you say all this i'm thinking of the met gala this year where really the stars of this year's met were instagram and youtube influencers like emma chamberlain madison beer so many different people and they're like 19 20 like billy mm. eilish billy eilish is like 18 or 19 like that is just fucking ridiculous i, I literally cannot fathom how anyone of that age could have such world domination it just feels
0: so mm-hmm. it
1: feels so icky to me
0: mm-hmm. yeah i remember a while ago you were saying that you kind of got sick of seeing articles like 40 under 40 yeah or i hate those 30 under 30 yeah. that kind of because we have title. this obsession
1: with like youthful people doing amazing things and Virgin like things and and yeah, yeah I, especially with women like um i hate the like forbes 30 under 30 it's like
0: you mm-hmm. just read that and you feel fucking shit about yourself, honestly. You just feel like... And how many of them really done... They, they really achieved things because of their own achievement? As in, you're talking about people that are probably uh, have generational wealth... Yeah, exactly. ...that has given them have the, the privilege to... to achieve what they can yeah, achieve. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. 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 Uh, another thing that I want to point out is that the media emphasis on females' usefulness... Um, like I said, there's lack of older people on screen, and particularly I want to mention Sex in the City, which is just that you can talk about it. Well,
1: yeah, I can't wait for the reboot. It's uh, starting on the December 9th, guys.
0: Mm-hmm. So there's still continuous misogyny on older women, uh, whereas, you know, sometimes we see a lot of media praise on older men, whereas older women are criticised.
1: Oh, yeah, totally.
0: So what's the benefit of getting old? I think... It's, it's about experience. It's something that you get old, you eventually, hopefully, get wiser and you age gracefully. And one thing that hasn't been talked about a lot was the mental health for older people. Mm-hmm. Um, I was listening to an po- a podcast earlier today to really open the discussion of what to do when one has entered retirement. You know, people talk about the transition into another stage of life. Do you accept getting old or you don't accept getting old? I found a lot of Asian parents that has a difficult time to adjust to their expectations once they get old, especially when they get, when, when they're retired. Mm. I'm speaking from our my own experience seeing our own parents. Mm. I do feel like once our dad was uh, retired, I think that he was, there's a difficult period for him to adjust into that retirement life. Mm. And I do feel that there's, higher expectations from him and placing a lot more strains on both parties. Like I see uh, even with listening to the fr- uh, stories from my friends that their Asian parents, once they retire, they don't have work. Mm. So they have all their attention on their adult children. Yeah, and exactly. They will start nagging about them. Like, why aren't you married? Why aren't you having kids or why aren't you having more kids? Yeah or you may you're not making enough money and just comparing themselves with their own children yeah yeah so i think there is something there is a space that people need to explore about talking about mental health for older people yeah yeah and yeah.
1: and i think what what is really something to also mention is that even, like, 20, 30 years ago, mental illness was not a mm. kind of publicly... It's not a public discourse that anyone had. Mm-hmm. Let, like, yeah. in Australia, let alone in Asia, like, even now today, in yeah. Asian society Asia and culture, you don't talk about prevalent. your mental health. Like, um, in Asian culture, you are respected if you keep things to yourself. You know, mm-hmm. you don't tell anyone if you're depressed or you're struggling with anxiety. That's, like, a flaw that... Uh, it's like It's almost like airing up your dirty laundry. That's what Asian people think. You know, if you tell mm-hmm. people you're struggling with something, your um, Asians think that you're placing a burden on other people and, like, you're just mm-hmm. not supposed to do that. You're supposed to keep everything. Mm-hmm. Like, in mm-hmm. Asian society, repression and oppression of the self, of the individual, of the I internal see, yeah, struggle, a, are seen as great assets. It's a good, positive
0: thing if you fucking repress yourself. It's so fucked Oh, my
1: God, yeah. It's
0: so <laughs> I don't know how to find another segue into the next thing that I wanted to talk about, but um, so last week I've done an interview with Yumi Lee from Older Woman Network, um, it was such a pleasure talking to her, um, she shared a lot of insights of issues of ageing within Australian society, we didn't have enough time to talk into a bit more intersectional spheres, but, uh, i want to share with our listeners of the interview that i did with her and we will yeah we'll go from there yeah sounds good Hi, this is Helen from Asian Bitches Down Under and it is my pleasure to have lovely Yumi on our episode today. Yumi is the manager of Older Women's Network and has been a peace and women's rights activist for many years. And also she has worked in communication, fundraising, advocacy and lobbying, both in Australia and abroad. She is honoured to support the strong tradition of Older Women Network in raising awareness of the issues of concern for older women. She is driven by a strong sense of social justice and the belief that our society will be enriched when we have full participation of those who are currently marginalised. I've come across with her through attending a couple of online seminars uh, last month on issues encountered by older women in Australia. The seminar topics include valuing women's worth, ageism and inclusion. It was a wonderful experience watching the discussion and some thought-provoking conversations. I think aging is something that is inevitable nowadays as we are now uh, entering a era with better medical advancement in extending human life but how are we responding to this aging society and what's the perception from the general public about older people and as a woman how do we see aging as a natural progress in our life here's my interview with Yumi Lee So let's start. Um, Before we start, I would like to check on with you. How are you feeling right now? Like, how are you handling with the situation with COVID? You know, I I usually ask this with um, Jesse when we first start occasionally just just to check on each other. Yeah. So how how Um, are you feeling, Yumi? (laughs)
2: That's such a lovely question to start with. Um, I think I have mixed feelings. Mm -hmm. I am worried because the cohort I work with are older women. Mm -hmm. And even though our vaccination rates are so high, I tend to look at what's happening overseas, for example, in Singapore, where they have Mm -hmm. very high vaccination rates rates and I think currently you know the infection transmission rate is over a thousand a day mm. and the government is having to re-impose restrictions because their hospital system is getting overwhelmed yeah. so I, I, I worry and, and wonder when we are going to reach that stage you know so I, I have a sense of anxiety when I think about where we are at now but personally I am fine I'm looking forward to the Christmas break because it's been an extremely busy year so even though we have been in lockdown um, it is it has been a busy time you know for me work-wise yes
0: okay that's understandable was there any changes to your work situation like you've been doing more like what we're doing now to video conferencing and the change of changes of the events what's happening at your workplace
2: yes yes of course um we were all working from home and we had to you know to use that famous covid word pivot uh-huh. so we had to pivot and offer a lot of our activities online so at the height of the pandemic when we were all forced to stay inside we had absolutely you know amazing numbers of older women sign up for our classes which we made free because we wanted it to be accessible for everyone regardless of their economic situation and as you know you know Australia has one of the most expensive internet rates in the world outrageous you know <laughs> i lived in vietnam for a few years recently and there internet is free it's freely available wow. even in the corner shop you know you go down and have a coffee that costs less than a dollar and and there's free internet it's available everywhere it's a given that wherever <laughs> you go, free internet yeah. so to come back to australia where internet is so costly it's, it's just mind-boggling, really. And to think that with the pandemic, a lot of people, um, you know, families who who don't have really enough and with kids doing online schooling and, you know, with the limited number of devices and having to pay for internet and with older people on the pension. Um, so I think it is a, a massive issue and that's why we, we put it on for free. So, you know, that's one of the things that, we did. And we also called our members to find out how they're doing. And um, I think for us here in New South Wales, because we haven't had as many lockdowns as in Victoria, Mm -hmm. it hasn't been as traumatic yes but having said that it has still been difficult of course yes, yes of
0: course yeah that's understandable so let's put a um covert aside um i the first question that i'll have for you is that um to of course to introduce yourself like your background maybe your hobbies and where you're based in australia
2: right okay i am umili obviously as you know i am half chinese and half japanese so the two enemies of world war two <laughs> you know in in a a single package and um, so my mother met my father when he went to Japan to study and so he brought her back to Malaysia and um, that was in the early 60s and at that time I think the feeling the anti-Japanese feeling in Malaysia was still pretty strong And my father comes from a pretty traditional Chinese family. So I think it was very hard for her to to adjust to life in in Malaysia initially. Um, So I grew up in Malaysia up to the point I was 15. And then I went to study in Singapore. In those days, there was O-levels and A-levels. Because as you know, Malaysia has what they would call a positive discrimination policy whereby mm-hmm. they give uh, privileges to those they say who are the indigenous peoples of Malaysia. But in actual fact, if you were to look at the policy, it's actually they privilege the Malays and not exactly the indigenous yes. indigenous Yes, yes. yes. In Malaysia. So, um, so my chances of getting into university in Malaysia were not as great. So that's why I went to Singapore to study and, um, and then I went to the UK. Where I did my uh, undergrad and postgrad degree, and of course, in doing all of this, I, I disappointed my Chinese businessman <laughs> tremendously because I think you know the pathway to good Asian girls like us are you either be a teacher or a doctor, mm-hmm. or an accountant. accountant yeah, know. definitely, <laughs> absolutely. You know, and what did I do? I went to the UK and I studied literature. Ah, oh, so in a completely useless degree, you know. How can you monetize something like that? So, um, so I'd never ended up with that massive mansion with, you know, three Mercedes-Benz parked in the driveway, you know, as a sign of of of, uh, of success in the eyes of, you know, the traditional yeah. um, Asian parents, as you well know. So, in you know, instead, what happened is I I turned, uh, you know, into a professional beggar. So I beg for a living in the sense that uh, try to get funding for worthy causes and um, have always done so. And I suppose one of the most interesting reflections I have is that growing up in, in, in Malaysia, where they have a very draconian law, which right. allows the government to throw you into prison for two years without trial, if they deem that you're a security risk. So that really dampens um, civil society and mm-hmm. agitators so I never thought of any other career you can't be what you can't see as as you know so true in that sense so when I went to the UK and um, I studied at the University of York can't tell you the amazing shock and horror I had and this was you know autumn and it's cold in York let me tell you think it you know, very uh, hard
0: for you as a Malaysian you know person going to Heading into the northern hemisphere of, you know, just heading into the winter climate. <laughs> yes,
2: yes, it was. And what shocked me was here was this student activist mm. chaining themselves on one of the bridges on campus, mm. trying to make a political point. And, and that fear of political activism was so ingrained that I actually walked around, you know, it took the long cut so I didn't have to go across the bridge, you know, and and slowly, uh, obviously, that feeling subsided. So when I came to Australia to start my PhD, I joined uh, the Women's International Peace uh, League for Peace and Freedom, Mm -hmm. which is, you know, a women's peace organization, and and then became a red bag you know from, from that day onwards you know <laughs> you know all my years of pent up social justice uh discrimination and all of that just blossomed i suppose Helen yes yeah. so
0: so speaking of activism can you tell us about your work with the older woman network like uh, essentially what does OWN involves and what sort of works that you do
2: right um well The Older Women's Network is over 30 years old. And the main areas of advocacy is um, on, at the moment, is on the housing situation for older women. As you know, we are the fastest growing cohort amongst the homeless. So that's a key advocacy issue that um, we are pressing um, all levels of government on. And the other thing is of sexual assault against older women, especially in nursing homes. And, you know, it may shock some of your listeners to know that there are at least 50 sexual assault cases in nursing homes every week. And, you know, I I guess it's a combination of ageism and sexism that, you know, we are not marching on the streets to say that this is unacceptable. Can you imagine if 50 sexual assaults were taking place in schools Mm -hmm. every week do you think the minister would still have his job? No way. You know, parents will be up in arms. But somehow, there's something that happens in this country where if you think of older people, and especially older women, you know, who are a lot of whom are, you can say, even locked up in nursing homes because they do lock up their dementia units. And and they think, oh, well, you know, she has dementia, so she won't worry, you know, that she won't remember it's a sexual assault. I mean, that is just so wrong. Mm -hmm. So we are doing advocacy on that issue. Yeah, yeah we, we work on, you know, uh, on issues around ageism and, you know, economic insecurity of older women. So, yes, and I think sometimes our, our activism... Uh, will get us into trouble. I don't know if you're aware that Andrew Lemming has uh, threatened us with defamation because... Oh, uh, well,
0: are you one of the organisations that he's up against as well? Because I've heard that he's he is up against a, a couple of the charities. Jesus Christ.
2: Yes. Yeah. Oh, so um, on the day after he retracted, retracted his apology, we did a Facebook post about it. And um, he was not happy and he threatened us with defamation. We're a tiny organization. We survive on the smell of an oil rag and we have no lawyers behind us. And so we just had to pull down the post. And also, you know, um, and, and um, so we were on a current affair last night. And obviously, because he's also suing, you know, uh, a current affair. Um, they made him look like what he was. You know, they said that he had stooped to new lows to attack a group of grannies. Mm -hmm. So, yes. Uh, So I I think this is indicative of the um, climate at the moment where women who call out men for their bad behaviour are being silenced. And as you know, Professor uh, Gemma, Carrie has had three defamation suits slapped on the same day by, you know, Christian Porter, Andrew Lemming, and uh, Peter von Onselen by the same law firm. It, it, is, it, it is a worry. Mm-hmm. Yes. It, it's yeah. not good for women, let alone, you know, older women mm-hmm. who are, you know, more and more of us are retiring into poverty, you know, one in three of us who are over 60 um, living, who are single, are living in poverty. And and that's the thing. When I was living in Nepal and Vietnam recently, I was away for 12 years, and where you really see poverty so visible on the streets, you know, people begging uh, with really torn clothes, looking, you know, so bedraggled. Um, And then to come back here to Australia, where everything on the surface looks so much you know, nicer, cleaner, neater, richer. And to find that you have this hidden underbelly of poverty, especially for older women, and, and so many of them living in their cars was it, you know, I just it it is an, a huge injustice. Yeah.
0: Yeah, definitely. I agree with you. I think it comes down to specific social s- stigma around older women. Um I, I guess I'm I'm going to speak of the privileges again. Like I grew up in a relatively privileged background with a family support, and within my social circles, not a lot of people talk about poverty, and a lot of people assume poverty. Poverty is, uh, like you said, is quite invisible in Australia. We don't see it, and people often just brush aside saying that oh it's not really happening what do you think that there's a stigma in the society of older women because most people will assume that oh if a woman marries and you're if you'll have a partner for life you're secure but the fact is that I think the past Couple of decades is not like that because women are standing up. We're voicing our concerns, and if we have a choice to get divorced, often that the financial burdens will come tumbling on upon women. Yeah, what what do you think uh, about that?
2: I I so agree with you, Helen. There are so many points that you have raised there, and and I I'll, I'd like to start first with the, um, you know, the cohort that we grow up with. I'm part mm-hmm. of an Asian mothers group. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we, we got together when my son was a baby and he, he just refused to sleep. So, <laughs> well, <laughs> that, you know, that's like 21 years ago. And, you know, the interesting thing is that they have swallowed the, the neoliberal narrative that people who are poor, people who are on welfare are there because they are lazy, they don't mm. want to work yeah. and I, I therefore, why, should, um, yeah. why should we give taxpayers money to support them, all right? So this is the, the, the overwhelming, overriding narrative that gets swallowed hook, line and sinker. But mm. the actual reality is that there are more people looking for jobs than there are jobs. I, I believe there are six people for every single opening, job opening, because of ageism, where employers say that they prefer not to hire people who are older. And this is something that they have revealed in a survey run by the Australian Human Rights Commission. Mm-hmm. And, and they have built this even knowing that it is an illegal thing to do. So you can imagine how many more actually practice it. And, and the fact that women um you know they say that when you get married your husband will look after you and uh, you know your life is fixed forever mm-hmm. it's just not the case you know mm-hmm. so many marriages break down women they sacrifice their career and um, to look after the husband to look after the children so they end up with no super and no savings mm-hmm. And when you sell a house and you split the proceeds into two, it's impossible to buy another house, especially now with property prices so high. You know, so it's no wonder, it's no wonder that um, they are ending up homeless, you know. And you have to be 80, eight zero years old in this state before you're even considered for priority housing. For public housing. (gasps) Oh my goodness, I didn't know that.
0: That's a scary number.
2: it is a scary number and and so there are the odds are really stacked against older women and especially i would say older women who are you know from our background asian backgrounds mm-hmm. who stick with their marriages despite abuse because of loss of face mm-hmm. you know like when my mom she left my dad when she was 72 you know after years and years of unhappy of of an unhappy marriage and she is homeless she is literally homeless so you know so I'm having to support her so there is I I think you know every one of us will know someone an older woman who is housing insecure whether it's within our own family or relatives or, or friends and this is a situation. It's a systemic problem. It's not a problem because we made poor personal choices. It is a systemic problem brought about poor policy choices, you know, policies which privilege the male gaze and not the needs of the vulnerable. Yeah,
0: um, yeah, I agree with that. Um, you were just talking about how the, you know, the East, the Asian perceptions of institution of marriage. And what do you think about our, the differences between East and the West uh, perception of older people? I do understand that, well, at least from my own background that we grew up, we need to respect more of the elderly. But however, I'm seeing that there is becoming like a broken system, even in Asian countries that younger generations are not really looking after the older generations. And the government really definitely needs to take up upon more responsibilities. Um, what about in Australia? Do you see the differences within C because we're quite a very diverse um, community. Is there a difference's perceptions, how to treat elderly? or from your own experience, what do you see?
2: From my own personal experience and my observation, I think it's not just Asian, but that there are also, you know, some European cultures that really it is expected that parents are looked after by their children, mm. you know. And um, I, I think while, while some younger people want to do that, but because of the economy because of how expensive things are it is just not possible because you need two incomes to survive Mm. you know it's impossible to survive on one income if you have a mortgage to pay if you have children to raise two people need to go out to Mm -hmm. survive
0: yeah and
2: you know it's very hard to then care for someone who needs your attention in the daytime, too. And I think, you know, the way society and cultures have evolved. Um, and you know, with the sense of community being eroded, where you know we are moving further and further away from where we are born. Like you know, you could be you you could uh, be born and grow up in a particular suburb, but your work takes you to a different place altogether. Mm. So you know, then you lose that sense of connection, and your parents don't want to move from where they know and the place they know and the people they know. They they, they might not want to follow I, you. A completely yeah. different date. So I think, you know, the situation is a lot more complicated. And of course, of you know, obviously there are some people in the, in the younger cohort who think it's not my duty to care for my, um, you know, older generation. So you, you have a full range of them. Yeah, so it's hard to to generalise that. But I would say definitely, you know, the way that we have evolved as a society, as a culture, as an economy has not helped us in building strong community, family and societal bonds Mm -hmm. to enable us to care for each other Mm -hmm. more.
0: So in terms of what we've just talked about today, um, of your work and what's happening in the society, what can we do to improve the lives of older women? Like, what advice would you give to our listeners in terms of the actions that we can do now to help and improve the lives of the older women?
2: Um. Well, have we got six hours? <laughs>
0: <laughs> I, I, think,
2: yeah. I think the most important thing that anyone can do, and that relates not only to older women, mm-hmm. is basically, to be aware of the different political parties mm-hmm. and what the policies are with regards to looking after the vulnerable in our society. Mm-hmm. You know, and all the women would fall into it because we are all interconnected. And it is a mentality, a philosophy an outlook, and outlook and, and that guides what we do for people. And, you know, I would strongly urge everyone to be more politically aware, because I think, you know, Australia is at a place where we are so comfortable in so many regards compared to so many other nations. We don't have an armed conflict. We're not running away from war. Mm -hmm. You know, our social security system, while broken, still exists, and there is no mass starvation. So, Um, A lot of people are comfortable and it's easy for them to dismiss that all political parties are the same. They all rot. They all are hopeless, you know, so, you know, so my vote doesn't matter. It's just one vote. Um, My plea to everyone listening is please be more politically engaged. Mm -hmm. Find out more what's happening and the people who will be able to tell you the truth are those who are the vulnerable in in our communities. They will tell you exactly what's happening and how the policies impact them because remember while we are comfortable today it just takes one stroke of bad luck to send Mm -hmm. us into a spiral of bad lucks to end up at the bottom of the pile. And so no one is safe until the very, the most vulnerable one is taken care of. And that would be my message to your listeners.
0: Wow, thank you so much. That's so good. I was going to ask you the final question that I have on my my notes, but I think you pretty much cover it. I was going to ask you, um, what kind of advice would you give to younger women in the current generation? But I think, um that one pretty much covers all.
2: you know I I love younger women um I say because they are our future you know Mm -hmm. I say to them look for a good mentor and I say to all the older women listening find a younger woman to mentor because you know younger women um As as we all know, as we go through life, we learn lessons, we gain perspectives, and we see a little differently. And so when you are in a particular situation as a younger woman, it always helps to have an older woman's perspective to at least help inform your next decision. And because your next decision helps you, um, because, you know, every time every single minute of the day, we stand at a juncture, whether we take the left turn or the right turn, and things will fall into place based on those decisions. Mm -hmm. So the fewer turns we take that causes pain and suffering, the easier life is for us. And so I, I urge younger women to save. Don't depend on anyone, let alone a partner, for your Security or your happiness, for that matter, and look for a mentor.
0: Yeah, that's that's a great advice. Yeah, I do encourage people to seek out mentors as well. It's a connection of to, to society as well. Sometimes you get different perspectives from you know different people, and that's a really good idea. Yeah, thank you so much, Yumi. You're Yeah,
2: you're thank you. welcome. And and look, we haven't even touched racism, and I've mm. got so much to say about that, having experienced it myself. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I'll then. have to
0: get you back. I'll have to get you back to talk about racism on the next <laughs> um, session. Uh, so it it is such a pleasure to have you on our show, Yumi. And um, for our listeners, if you are interested to join uh, Older Woman Network, I, I know there are uh, a couple of listeners that on a similar age group or simply just want to know more about the organization, the link will be on our show notes and we'll encourage our listeners to check them out. Um, Thank you again, Yumi. And we hope, uh, hopefully to, you know, invite you to come back to our show very soon.
2: Thank you so much, Helen. All the best to you and your listeners. Take care. Thank you.
0: at the end of our episode remember to subscribe to our podcast on spotify google and apple podcast remember to give us a five star rating and we welcome listeners to send us your feedbacks to any topics you would like us to explore check out our updates our socials and make sure you share with your friends to help us to extend the visibility of asian beaches down under to continue the intersectionality in the podcast industry so we'll chat to you next time bye